Hey moms, welcome to Moms in the Know. I'm your host, Jennifer Zuniga, and today my guest is Jamie Mundy. Jamie founded Core Financial Group based in Auburn Hills, Michigan in 2009. He and his team specialize in designing and customizing wealth management plans for individuals, families, businesses, and industry professionals. He enjoys meeting with couples, business owners, and individuals to learn about their financial goals. He is a big proponent of teaching families how to create generational wealth to ensure their kids, grandkids, and generations to come are financially secure. Jamie is a proud father of three and a husband to a lovely wife, Gina. Welcome, Jamie. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here. Um... Looking forward to being on Moms in the Know, and this will be a fun conversation. Thanks for having me. Yes, my pleasure. And I do have to admit, so uh, we just started this interview, and I realized <laughs> I hadn't pushed record. So my apologies. You were just telling us um, or explaining to us how we should approach money. And I, you talked about simplifying it. So I'm going to let you explain that again and again All i good. apologize take two it, it, it is totally fine and being that i also do podcasting uh, i have also dealt with this exact same <laughs> dilemma i can't tell you how bad i am with technology so uh it's uh, you're in good company today um yeah so what i was just alluding to is really you know there's a lot of people there's a lot of information to discern when it comes to finances where we are bombarded on a daily basis from a lot of different places. And, and, and by and large, it's really more focused on product. If you actually examine what people are saying and doing in the financial services industry, it's really focused on product. And it's not to say that products aren't, aren't, aren't good. They are, some of them aren't, but, but by and large, they're, they're, these companies are pretty well intended and they're and the products are good. Where, where, where we, see the deficiency in many cases is just understanding that this 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 money that we seek it is a commodity it, it is not a math equation it's a commodity it's a medium of exchange so in order for it to have value and again our money doesn't have anything backing it at the moment because we are a fiat currency situation where we can just print whatever we want and there's a lot of negative things to that we may or may not get into but um, the reality of it is that the value is in the effort that we put in to earn it and then you can use that as a medium of exchange to buy things and, and all sorts of things save it um, develop it for retirement whatever these goals are so you have a lot of folks that are really really focused on this relationship of money to how it relates to what do I get to do for the rest of my life what do I get to do now and we absolutely need it to live we need it to buy things we need it to create more wealth for ourselves we needed to support other people potentially and so there's a lot of pressure on us to to have money you know and and i see that pressure coming from all angles and i think it's important to have this conversation because it really does start with what somebody's relationship with money is and and if you look and examine it you know some families grow up with an exorbitant amount of wealth and they're their kids are going to have a their own perspective on what money is. Maybe it's easy to come by for them because their parents had so much. I know a lot of people that did not grow up that way. And indeed, I have clients that they're, they're, money's a stress point for them. Even though they have a lot of it, keep in mind, they live so frugally and they're afraid to spend it. And, and I see all different walks of life with all different attitudes towards it. And I think one of the common things that I see is that just the basic understanding of what money is 
I don't think it's taught like the way it used to be. And, and maybe it hasn't really been taught in this way at all, but I know for a fact that it's being not being taught in school now. It wasn't taught in school when I was in school and I'm in my forties. So, um, you know, back in the eighties, you know, this wasn't something that was talked about, but I think we have to start with the basic economic fact that we are taught to use mathematics as a way to determine what to do with our money. And, I, and so if you've ever gone into a financial advisory place or you've ever talked to anybody that has, you know, a license to talk about money or who doesn't for that matter, um, a lot of people think they're financial advisors, right? Um, if you examine money and mathematics, math is an absolute science. Money is not. And I always use an analogy um, with, with the customers that I serve when we're talking about this to give them some context to what I'm talking about. And we always use an example around oranges. And I can't claim this is mine. Uh, one of my awesome mentors that I've had in my life uh, can claim this one, though, uh, Bob Castellone. Uh, he's an economist that I've been studying under for about 11 years. And if we examine just oranges and we, and we take a scenario, and so let's imagine you and I are sitting together and let's say we're having uh, a cup of coffee or something at a coffee shop. And let's say that there's a table next to us. And on that table next to us, we have three scientists. We have a mathematician, we have a biologist and a horticulturist. If we were to bring them over one by one and ask them a standard question, um, let's just say we had some oranges that were sitting in front of us. And we said, hey, there's four oranges here. If we asked the mathematician how many oranges would be here if we didn't add any or take any away, what do you think they'd say mathematically? What? Three. Yeah, or four or whatever I said. Um, there would be three or four oranges, whatever we started with. And that would be correct, right? That would be correct to answer to that question. But if we ask a biologist that question, so my dad, um, if my dad was sitting on that table, table next to us, from a biology standpoint, he might say something completely different because over time, oranges could erode or decay, right? Yes. Yeah. So he might come back and say, well, if we don't add any or take any away, take any away is irrelevant, there'd be zero oranges here because they would decay and, and rot. It's also a correct answer. So now think about this. We have two conflicting but correct answers to the same question, right? And that is already violating mathematics because you can't have that in math. Then we have a horticulturist, somebody who studies plant life. They might say, hey, there could be a thousand here. Could be, could be orange trees because the seeds could germinate and, and what have you. So the point that we, that we try to make with that analogy is oranges are a lot more like money and money is a lot more like oranges than it is mathematics. Math is absolute, it's predictable, it never changes. If, as long as you have the math equation right, you're gonna get the same answer. The problem is we're treating money this way. As we can all see right now, money doesn't work that way. Money can be confiscated. It can be locked up. It can be taxed. It can be inefficient. We could have circumstances like a pandemic that strip money away from people or add money to their pockets. We've seen the largest transfer of wealth I've maybe historically ever um, as a result of big tech being able to and larger companies being able to be who serves us with our goods and services because small business has had to close in many cases in many states. So. If we look at that basic fundamental, all right, money and math not being the same thing, and if we don't violate that economic fact, people will have a much different outlook on what money really is because we're treating it like a math equation when indeed it is not a math equation. And it's one of the biggest things that I see in our industry that's false because we have a lot of people that are being told, hey, just go let your money sit 
for the next 25, 30 years and build it and build it and build it. And don't worry, it'll be enough because you're going to average this much rate of return. And I can't tell you that's that is not doesn't work that way. There's too many other outside environmental factors that impact that. So when we talk about, you know, what should someone do with their money? Everybody's uniquely different. But what I will tell you is the core principles of economics should never change and they should never be violated. And if we do that, if we stay true to those things, we're going to end up with much better outcomes because it's a much more than just ending up with the biggest pile of money. So I guess one of the things that I could um, interject here would be it's, it's almost like if like you own a business, right? You, you and your husband own yes. a food service business, correct? Yeah, yeah. Right. So if your business, let's say, did $4 million a year, or let's say, let's say I'm your competitor. Let's say my business is doing $4 million a year. And let's say your business was doing $2 million a year. On the surface, which one's better? Well, the one that's doing $4 million. Yeah, your business, right? Your business your would be business. my your business. business. That's right. right. It's got to be my business. <laughs> so my business, right. So what if I told you, though, that my business broke even and your business only had a million dollars of operating costs, which means you netted a million dollars a year. Now who's got a better business? Well, I would be happier. I have the better business. Right. So, <laughs> um, and and you probably run your business fantastically. So that, that in and of itself we're always looking for, hey, how big can I make this account? And from where we sit and all the studying we've done on economics, macroeconomics, understanding how money works, it's really about the effectiveness of that pile of money that you go create. How, is, how exposed is it to taxation? How easy is it to access over time? Is it locked up like it would be in a retirement account? What about opportunities that come along that maybe you could go buy a rental property with some of the money you have, but uh, you know it's locked up and you can't get at it. So there's all these different forces that exist. And so I think one of the things we have to take a step back and look at is this. There's three institutions that predominantly affect our lives, corporations, financial institutions, and the federal government. And they operate by a very, very similar set of characteristics and operating rules. So we go through these rules with every client because if they don't understand these, they're gonna have a really difficult time figuring out what to do with the resources they have. And money's one resource, right? We've got a lot of resources at our disposal that we really need to understand the value of, but money seems to be the hot topic that everybody wants to talk about because it's, that's all everybody talks about, right? So we'll stick with that. But these four rules are critical to understand for every person who saves money, who has money, who wants to have money. Rule number one is these institutions want our money. That is the number one rule, right? And I'm sure you can appreciate this. They want our money and they want it any way they can get it. So you look at a company like Fidelity, really, really big, enormous financial services firm. They have a $500 million plus dollar marketing budget. So their number one goal is to make sure that you know the difference between that light and dark green line. I think it might be an older version of their commercials. I don't watch much TV, but that indeed is something that they are making sure that everybody sees so that they can gather those assets and put them under their, under their helm. And if I was their CEO and if I was on their board, I'd tell them, keep doing it. It's working great. <laughs> you know. So that's rule number one, they want our money. Rule number two is they want it systematically. So they want it every paycheck, every month, every week, whatever the case may be. There's all these different intricate moving parts that really persuade us to do this in an ongoing basis. And we could talk about some of the benefits that that gives to the consumer. There probably are some, but it really does benefit those 
us because now they have they have awareness of what their revenue streams are. So that's just rule number two that we have to understand. Um, and again, if I was president of those organizations, I'd say, keep doing it. It's working great. Rule number three is they want to hold on to it for as long as possible. So why would they do that? Well, because they're charging fees. They're, you know, they have access to that capital. Many of these institutions use fractional reserve lending. Most of them do, which allows them to take in a dollar from us and lend it out nine times. So there's, there's all, all these things that we need to be aware of. And that's the third rule, which is they want to hold on to it for a very long period of time, ideally generations, okay? Which really, again, violates a lot of the core principles of economics that we can get into. The fourth thing is they want to give us back little by little or none at all. And so that is just, those, those four staples, those four rules are so vitally and critically important for every consumer to understand because it, again, it doesn't make them bad. It doesn't make these entities bad, but it is in reality working against us because we're taught to set it and forget it, right? How many times have you heard? Uh, and again, anything that I say about any financial advisor, uh, I'll, I would never name anybody specifically. Most of these men and women are bright. They're very well-intended and they're trying to do the right thing. And, and I it's believe- it's within that, the bigger system. They're just in the system. Right. Right. I mean, again, I'm, I'm a part of the system. Um, I worked for the law. Oh, you just broke up. You worked for, oh, you, well, we just lost Jamie, his screen froze. Okay, there, Jamie? I am here. Can you hear okay. me now? Yeah, yeah, the screen just okay. froze. Not sure. My fault. So, but, um, but you were saying yeah. you worked for the largest... Uh, the, at the time uh, when I was there, and this would have been in the mid 2000 era, um, I worked for the largest financial institution on the planet. Um, they were number 13 on the global 500. Huge, huge organization. And I, what I can tell you is that the people that I, most of the people that were in the positions that I was in as an advisor, right? You know, I wasn't in upper management or anything like that. I was an advisor mm -hmm. and I went there to work. Um, very well intended, but the way that we're trained is products solve problems, period. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it wasn't until I started studying the third and fourth level effects of a financial decision, the rippling effects is what we call it. That it wasn't until then that I realized that financial products had very little to do with why people succeed financially. It has everything to do with the strategy that they're using. And really it even comes in even, even uh, beyond that. And it's, what is your purpose? What are your values? What are your core values of your family? What are you trying to do? And every, like I said, every financial model, every unique situation is different, but these core principles don't change. And if we abide by these principles, we understand what these four rules are. And we understand that the terrain is going to be difficult to navigate. We can do very, very simple things to put ourselves in a better position. And one of those things is making sure we understand those rules. We understand how they work and we understand what to do to defend ourselves against the third and fourth level effects of those rules as, as, as we experience them with our investing. Wow, so this is really fascinating, really fascinating. And all of a sudden the questions I was gonna ask you fall into the wayside. <laughs> That's the, you know what that is though that that is the that is the key to a great interviewer. But because <laughs> as you say, yeah, I was just you know oversimplifying everything, and as you say, I mean, 
Well, I feel like it is. Like they try to make things, when I say they, I mean the whole system. Everybody's coming yes. out with new products and, you know, commercials are constantly bombarding us either subliminally or right in our face as to what we should buy, what we shouldn't buy, what we should invest in, how we shouldn't. And everything is just so overwhelming where it can be. But what you just said about staying in alignment with your values, all of a sudden it was just like, bang. I mean, that really, really means something to my core. It's interesting. You're from core financial. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended, right? Good job. You, you, you hit my core. <laughs> because I might so steal interesting. that. Yeah, it's so interesting because like me, you know, I'm a um, spiritual person as we all are. And I always feel like when I am coming from a place that is lined up with my core, with my higher self, then I'm going to attract like, right? Then, and it's not about attracting to get more things. It's about energetically being in tune with what I'm supposed to be one doing on this planet or, Certainly. you know, how I live my life. And I notice when I'm in my core, life is really enjoyable, <laughs> you know, when I'm coming from my higher self. So it's a strike that, I mean, it really strikes me. So you're talking about, you know, know your values, know yourself, and then working from there with, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but then your, your financial outlook or your, your relationship with money. Is Certainly. Yeah. And, and yeah. so people, people will ask me this all the time. They'll say, you know, you, you've seen all my stuff, you know, we x-ray, we x-ray people's basically their whole financial picture by putting it on a econometric model. And for us, it's, it, we're able to see everything holistically at once. And that's really important that not only that we see it that way, but that more importantly, that the people that we serve see it that way. So that they can really see where their stuff is. They can organize it. Um, like I said, it, most of the time we will we'll engage with people all the time and they have good financial products. They've made good choices. They've just done it over time. And there's no, if you think about it, there's really no way somebody could effectively organize something, uh, not to perfection because nothing's perfect, but to organize something to where everything is kind of working in unison, almost like the engine timing on a car or something like that, um, without having a way to categorize or um, to organize what it is they're doing. And, and for a lot of people, they buy things over time with different professionals, with um, perhaps for different reasons. Um, maybe they got divorced, maybe they got married, maybe they had kids. All these different life experiences drive us to make different choices. And a lot of times there's people in our industry that are right there along the way helping them do it. And that's great. But what we see typically though, because of that, and because of this lack of knowledge around money and the commoditization of it, understanding what it is as a medium of exchange and looking at it through a different lens, what we see is that the focal point is on things like rate of return, um, or it might be on the pile of money, or it might be, um, you know, uh, you know, this future date of when I get to retire and they mark it on their calendar. And, and what I try to tell people is what we're trying to predict here is impossible to predict. There's no possible way to do it because what we're trying to, to predict is something with variables that are constantly changing and forces that are, that exist that make this terrain very, very difficult. Um, and, you know, even just a legislation change can completely impact our retirement by, de by a decade. Just, just legislation changes in taxes or when you can access wealth. 
that can have a dramatic effect. So when we see a lot of people that have made these great choices, we almost look at it like a, just almost like a financial junk drawer full of things, which is, again, I can't, I didn't come up with that. That is something that my mentor, Bob, um, would a harp on us about, um, is that, you know, just because you have a bunch of good financial products doesn't mean they're organized in a way that you can get the best, highest use out of them. And it's almost like having a junk drawer at home, a bunch of good stuff in there, but I can't find that screwdriver. I mean, I just did this the other day, trying to find a screwdriver down here in Florida right now, because we're not at our home. And I have these junk drawers because I don't have anything organized yet. And I was so frustrated because I couldn't find what I was looking for. And I have a feeling that that's, that's happening in a lot of people's financial lives. And I know it is because we see it. I mean, I run across clients that don't know what they own. It sounded good at the time, and it doesn't make the product bad, but it might make the utilization of that product inefficient or deficient, right? So one of the things that we talk about is understanding that you've got a lot of outside forces that are biting for your cash. And, and some of these things are, are things that were created by these institutions and the government and financial institutions. Other things are just natural occurrences. But what we know is that money, money was an invention. This doesn't exist. We used to barter with things, you know, we, we invented money as a way to make things more convenient. Before it was, you know, if I wanted to trade my horse for, uh, you know, a, a cow, you do it or, you, you know, whatever it was at the time. Um, then we started using things like gold and gold coins and, and silver and different things that we knew had value because you had to mine for them. And, and all of a sudden now we are in a position several, several decades and years later where we just print this stuff and people are expected to keep up. Well, the value of it keeps changing. The more they print, the less worth it has. And, and there's ways they can control that, but that is indeed a tax. So, so one of the things that we, we, we really, really, really educate our clientele on is that you have things that are gonna confiscate your wealth over the years. The federal government is an entity that will have confiscation measures on your money. So what are your vulnerabilities to that? What are the threats to your, to your, to your money that you have? So you have things like federal income taxes, state income taxes, local income taxes, gas taxes, um, uh, sales tax, real estate tax. You start going through all the different taxes we're associated with or they're exposed to. Most people don't realize that the vast majority of people are paying more than 40% in taxes and they don't know it maybe even more, maybe 50, maybe 60%, depending on how much they have going on and where they spend their money, right? So we know that, that's a, that the government is absolutely an eroding factor to wealth. We also know that um, corporations and, and financial institutions also play a hand in that. Fees on investment accounts, volatility in the market's an eroding factor. So, you know, and some of these things we can't control, you know, someone sues you, and you don't have the proper provisions set up or, or contingency plans to defend your income or your assets against a lawsuit. That's an eroding factor. Divorce is an eroding factor. So we, 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 we cannot stress enough the importance of understanding that, yes, while it's important for your money to grow, while it's important for you to have money, it's ultra important to defend it. Because the, the minute we lose money that we've earned, we've lost the value of our time. And, and I don't know about you, I, I know my time's valuable, your time's valuable, um, people, your friends, your family, time is a, is, is a massively valuable thing in our lives that is almost quantified by how much money we make. And to lose it and to not have to lose it is, is something that we try to help people get their arms around. Well, especially if it's, hmm? if it's um, 
if it's, I'm sure there are just simple ways that are just so easy how you can, like if you know mm-hmm. different, you know, tax write-offs or, you know, not to lose Certainly. it. But, you know, I want to, um, because it's like moms in the know and, mm-hmm. you know, I want to, so for a young couple starting out, uh, they have some student debt. You know, I love what you're saying and I kind of want to bring it back because mm-hmm. right now we're thinking of people, it sounds like maybe who have been saving a little bit or a little bit older, but bringing it back down to a younger couple and they have some debt. Um, and I don't even know, like, okay, maybe they uh, are renting right now. They want to buy a house. Maybe they have, you know, one or a baby and another one on the way or a toddler, you know, that kind of Certainly. age group. So they're working. Um, I guess my question is, are they looking as that young couple? Are you saying they need to look at it the same way? And if they get their head around looking at it as you're describing it, what should they be looking for as they're going to be trying to have an enjoyable life, mm-hmm. maybe go on a vacation now and again, maybe send their kids to college, maybe maybe they'll have to take care of their own parents in the future. You know, oh, what yeah. kind of planning? What kind of or should you know what what should they be doing? Yeah, so this is a really simple thing. Um, there, there is a lot there. Most of the time, what I find is that people will come to us and say, "Hey, I have this need. I need life insurance. I need an IRA. I need whatever." That's fine, and you know, our industry is based on that. Our, our industry created that need or that perception of need. The, the next thing is you have goals, right? So you, you just mentioned, hey, you have a young family. Maybe their goal is to buy a house. Maybe their goal is to buy the house down the street. Maybe their goal is to rent a house. Those are all fine too. Um, where, we, where I come from on this is that needs and goals are limiting. It doesn't mean we don't wanna pay attention to them, but what we're striving for or what people should strive for in their lives with their money is maximum financial potential, okay? So there's a formula to that. If you, if you secure the most amount of benefits in your life that, that protect you from all the hazards that exist, those things like lawsuits, those things like disability, the things like premature death, um, you know, uh, somebody passing away prematurely and there being an estate tax issue, or uh, which is not as common for younger people that don't have as much money yet. Um, but before we even get into any of all that, they really need to realize that their most valuable asset is themselves. It isn't anything they can buy. It isn't any investment they can get into. It isn't anything that I'm going to tell them to invest in. It's themselves. It's their human capital. Their ability to make money is by far and by and large the most valuable asset they're ever going to have. And we want to nurture, first and foremost, nurture that. If you're young and and you're, you're, you're a mom or you're married, you're single, whatever it is, what are we doing to make sure that your human capital is developing so that you are valuable, not only as a mom, which of course you are as a, as a, as a wife, as a sister, whatever it might be, but that you have skills that you can go and bring value to the marketplace and get compensated for it in any way, shape or form. It could be opening a business. It could be any of those things, but we, in order to, to understand what to do next, that is the number one most important thing that we want to make sure people understand. And when they do, they all of a sudden want to protect it, right? 
So the first step in any plan that we would look at is making sure that, all right, have you, have you maximized the benefits that are available to you? Meaning if you're sued, are you indemnified from loss? I'm talking about complete indemnification if someone tries to come after your money. Um, if you became disabled, is 100% of your, well, your, your income coming into your household? And that's done through insurances, that's done through passive income, perhaps owning real estate, owning a business that's a web-based business. There could be a lot of different ways to do that too, not just insurance-based. Um, you have medical insurance situations, all right? What does that situation look like? I do have provisions for long-term care. To your point, you made a great point a second ago. Caregiving, not only to children, but for elderly parents. So as young moms are, are navigating their own lives and, and they have perhaps parents that aren't financially independent, and that happens all the time. We see this a lot. Usually it's the oldest daughter of the family that has to take care of mom and dad. And, and that's a huge burden because not only does it take money, but it takes that other resource we talked about with just time. And, and you can't get that time back. So um, although it's extremely important to, to be able to do that and, and anybody would do that for their parents, understanding what resources you have available to, to accomplish that is important. And also tying in, we talk about this generational stuff. What does that mean to mom and dad's resources? And in turn, how does that impact what the, what's gonna pass on to other generations? So for the young families out there, it's really making sure they're maximizing their own well-being, that what they're able to do with their careers or their intellectual leverage or their knowledge, what they can do to monetize it and create value, help other people, which is, I think, why we're here ultimately. Um, but then it's making sure that we have the benefits locked down. And you know, same thing with things like life insurance. People ask me, how much should I have? What's my needs-based calculation? I'm like, that isn't, that's irrelevant you should have as much as the life insurance company will give you because that's what they're saying. Your life monetarily, your working capital years moving forward is that's what they can insure you for. So if somebody was making a hundred grand a year, I couldn't get them $50 million of life insurance. They, the life insurance company would say, listen, there's no justification for this. So it's, it's a, it's something that is meant to indemnify a family from the loss of what that future earnings or the future capital of that family would be, you know, if that spouse is gone and that's how much life insurance somebody should have. Um, same thing with estate planning documentation. They, if, if they, if, if young families have children or they're planning to have children, having things like a will for guardianship is vastly important. Having powers of attorney, um, in the event you can't make critical medical or financial decisions on, on your own um, legally is, is really important. And then obviously, you know, being private with your money, you know, even young families that are starting out or young families that um, perhaps there's one spouse working, there's the breadwinner, or maybe it's a dual income household, all those things, we see all, all different sorts of arrangements. Um, but if we don't have certain things in place, like insurance documents, or we don't have legal documentation in place. We're setting ourselves up for a loss of wealth. And this, this is something very important for anybody who's listening right now to understand. The vast majority of people will lose more money than they ever keep. I'm talking by millions of dollars. And that even goes for young families that maybe they're just starting their careers out or they haven't built a lot yet. Better to, to look at doing things now, you know, in a way that can preserve and, and, and maintain your growth trajectory than it is to figure it out at 65, which is a lot of times what we see. So if I have somebody who's 65 that comes through our doors 
and things aren't going so hot or we point some things out to them they weren't aware of, a lot of times what they say is, I wish I would have met you 20 years ago. And it doesn't mean we can't do stuff for the people that age, but the earlier you start this, the better off you're going to be. We only get one exponential growth curve, growth curve throughout our entire lifetimes. One. <laughs> and it's amazing when you look at that mathematical equation, even though we don't want to use math as our primary reason for making a choice. When you shave off early years, you don't shave off the years right there. You shave off the years in the back end of the curve, which is monumentally more money. Because as you see that growth curve happen over time, I don't know if you've ever seen a statistical exponential curve, but you hit the rocket phase of compounding when you actually get to year 25. So unless your money has been sitting there for 25 years, you're never going to experience the true nature of that compounding over time. It doesn't mean you want to let it sit there all in one spot. It just means that that broad definition of exponential growth usually never happens for people. So, so Bringing it back though to just some practical things people can look at, make sure that all the areas of protection are maximized. Then look at how do I minimize my cost? Because one of the things that we, we wanna make sure that people aren't overlooking is lost opportunity cost on things that they're doing. Um, and anytime you spend money where you're not getting money returned back to you is a lost opportunity cost. Not only those dollars, but, and this, this could be a really good segue into just talking about a lot of these young mothers are probably wondering, what do I do for college? How do I plan for this massive cost? Because it is a massive cost. But it isn't just the money we lose or that escapes our world. It's what we could have done with it. So think about that. You, you own a business, and I love bringing this up because I love talking to business owners. But you've obviously, over the years, had to put capital into your business. And some of your young mothers may have to do the same thing if they own businesses or they have an entrepreneurial spirit, which I think is fantastic. I think it's the best thing anybody can do is own their own business um, or a host of them. Um, but that being said, it, 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 takes, it takes a keen sense of understanding um, about all these measures in order to make sure you don't end up one of those people that loses more wealth than you keep. But then having a, a, a system of measurement on how do I make sure I'm not overpaying for this stuff? How do I make sure that these insurances I'm paying for are actually going to do things, not only things for, for me now, but throughout my entire lifetime? When am I gonna activate these things? And it might be, you know, um, you know, making a decision today might indeed be one of the reasons why they get to retire when they want to, or, or, they, or they don't get to retire when they want to. But this lost opportunity cost is important to discuss because college education is one of the biggest lost opportunity costs that we see. Um, I mean, gosh, you, you, sending somebody to a private university can cost 50, 60, 70, 80 grand a year, 100 grand a year. But it doesn't even, it's absolutely astounding how expensive this has gotten. But if you just look at the premise of how we're being taught to do it, we have to take a step back and look at, okay, how does that affect mom and dad? Because it does. Because what we're doing is we're saying we're going to save and prepay for college. And then we're going to take that money that we've worked for. Remember, the value, the time value of that money, the money that you worked for, maybe owning the business or whatever it might be, to send that directly to a financial institution or, or a college institution, I guess is what you want to call it. That is a direct lost opportunity cost that you're not going to get that money back. And it's not just what that money went and, and did. Of course, it's worth paying for that. But how we pay for it is extremely important. But what if we could get to use other people's money to do it? What if we got to use the government's money to do it? 
Using other people's money is very, very powerful. But if it comes out of our own checkbook every single time, if it comes out of the 529 plan or whatever it is, it's not just what that money, how much that money's worth. It's what it would have done. Some college degrees for some of the people that we've done this analysis for can cost a million dollars per kid. Half a million to a million dollars per kid of lost opportunity cost. Wow. Because you got to imagine if I paid a hundred grand, what could that hundred thousand dollars have, have, have done for my family or my retirement if I would have left it alone or used it for something else? So we're always looking at ways to teach people how to explore every rock, how to turn over every rock. Can you get grants? Can you get scholarships? Can you use programs like dual enrollment? Certain states have those, those provisions where you can get college covered or half your college covered. Um, Using so, debt service. Yeah, Home so effort. in about college, when people mm -hmm. save for college, uh, let's say they, they have two kids and they saved up, you know, $50,000. Mm -hmm. And, well, this happened to friends of mine. And then their, um, you know, son went to college, the older son. Mm -hmm. And... Basically, if I remember correctly, the college saw that money sitting in that college fund and said, okay, you have that much for this year. So they gave them proportionally less than they would have. And then the second son didn't have any money for his college. Right. And of course, the subsequent years of the first uh, son, then they were eligible for more grants and they received more money. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like if they had done something else with that 50 grand rather than put it in the college fund, their child still would have gone to college, probably the same college, and they probably just would have received more grants or maybe aid. I'm not sure. Is there something better to do with than put money in a college fund? Well, it, it, it really, it, like people ask me, you know, well, what are you against like 529 plans or Coverdell IRAs or whatever? Like, no, of course not. There's nothing wrong with the product. It's the method, the strategy of paying for school that's flawed. And so I'll give you an example. Um, you know, for one, there's a lot of those programs count towards the FAVSA uh, financial aid calculation, and it can, it can actually hamper the ability to get government assistance. And those programs are out there for a reason. But let's just say mom and dad make too much money for that anyway. Um, really, then what it comes down to is making sure that we're doing everything we can to exhaust any resource we can to pay for school. And, 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 and not only that, but also where do you position your assets to maybe create income streams that could pay for school? And I'll give you an example. One of my other mentors, how he ended up paying for his school for his kids. And we're actually, we have actually done this with clients as well. They bought rental properties on college campuses. And they bought maybe one or two rental properties. We start with one. And then junior goes to school there and a bunch of his or her sorority sisters or buddies or whatever you want to call it, rent there too. So now we have an asset that's producing income. So instead of that money, let's say it was hundred grand going towards a 529 or 200 grand going towards a 529 plan over the years, you save up money, you put a down payment on a home or you buy the home outright. Maybe there's no debt, um, which is totally fine too. Now you have rental income paying your college tuition and an appreciating asset that when those kids are done or that child is done is going to continue to spin off passive income without really you having to do anything other than maintain, maintain the property. So that's not a one size fits all. That's not direct advice. 
but I've seen that work in families. I've also seen people use certain financial products that don't count towards those calculations. Things like permanent life insurance don't count towards those calculations. Um, you, can, you can actually use that product and you can use the life insurance company's money when you, when you take a loan out. You're, la you're loaning against your capital, not from it. And that's a big distinguishing factor that really real estate and things like cash value life insurance have those attributes, meaning just because you take money from it doesn't mean that you're losing the forward momentum of that asset. Meaning the real estate is going to continue to appreciate just because you have either debt service on it or you have people living there. It doesn't, that's not going to impact the appreciation of that asset. Whereas if we just paid the institution directly from our funds, the money's gone. It's never coming back, right? That money's now out of the model. And the, the, the third and fourth level effects of that, the ripple effect of that, that could be the difference maker of a family retiring or not, or retiring on their own terms or not. So um, hopefully what, what's being taken away from this is that it's a lot less about the product itself and more about just understanding how money operates and understanding that we can't just, we can't create more of it, only they can create more of it, which is basically the Federal Reserve, which is not even a government agency. <laughs> it's well, a private I, bank. Yeah, and I like your, um, I like that approach. You know, if you can purchase a property and then produce some rental income. And then if you actually held on to that, then you have that income. Maybe you use that income then to take care of your aging parents. Right. You know, right. One thing my husband always says is, you know, take, don't take out long term mortgages. If you mm -hmm. can do it, if you can help it and always pay it off early, always pay the principal, okay. put more on the principal. So if the mortgage, you know, was 3,500 a month, then pay 4,000, whatever you can mm -hmm. do, put in, you have to ask them to put it down on the principal so you can shave off all that interest. Okay. Is that, is that something you recommend or have thought about? All right. So that's a conversation that comes up all the time. <laughs> Every single, everybody wants to know this. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to explain this as easily as I can without getting too in the weeds here. Mathematically, and economically, it's easy to prove that keeping a house leveraged makes more sense, okay? For the rest of your life, makes more sense. Now, that is not true for everybody. And that is also, again, we don't wanna always just use mathematics or even economics to determine the value of something. So well, I'm gonna precursor this. Some people just grew up a certain way and mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and whoever paid their house off. If that's value to somebody, by no means do we want to interfere with that sleep factor or value. Because what I personally think about things or what I'm able to prove and disprove is irrelevant compared to the values and the purpose behind why somebody wants to do something. That being said, let's examine something real quick. Uh, if I went into the bank right now and I had two mortgages sitting in front of me at a 15 year and a 30 year, the banker is going to tell me that my 15 year mortgage has less interest, so therefore it's less costly over time. That is only half true. Where it is true is that you unequivocally are gonna pay less interest because it's not as long of a, of a maturity to the end of the note, right? You're gonna, it's not amortization is gonna be half as much as a 30 year. So interest by itself of yes, 100%, and usually, um, usually you have a lower interest rate on a 15 year mortgage too. 
So by a quarter point, maybe sometimes even more, but usually it's somewhere in that area. So we have that dynamic as well. So in many cases, what will happen is um, you go into a mortgage person and they're going to show you that math. And if you can afford the bigger payment, then you're going to do that because you're going to have your house paid off faster to your point and all that stuff. Where the, that's only half of the math. All right. The other part of the math comes along with understanding that there's a cost of money rate that exists in everyone's life. So you have to apply a savings rate. And if, if, if this were to be true to where paying off a home was always the number one most efficient thing to do mathematically, then buying it in cash would be the most efficient way, right? But that being said, that's not, that is not stopping the problem because there's this cost of money rate. And that is where, where can I go put money in my world where it can earn a rate of return and what rate of return could it be? And, and a lot of times people will say, well, you know, I can go earn 5%, 6% somewhere. My stocks did great last year, whatever, whatever the case is. I own my own business and I can control that and I understand how to get profit and all that. And I can, I can do that, fine. So if I go spend a half million dollars on a house out of my cash, I've just become the bank and I'm financing it at a lost opportunity cost of six or five or whatever percent, right? So now you look at it from the context of, well, if I have debt on the property, I absolutely have to put that savings rate in there. And I always use, I always use a lower one, like five or four, just to, so it's not you know, exacerbating the, the math on this. But then we also have to look at, there's tax advantages for having a house. You know, we get to, in many cases, if you don't have, if you're not breaching through your standard deduction and you don't make too much money, you can, you can actually deduct your interest on your mortgage. So that has to go into the equation. The other part is you have a much bigger payment on a 15 year mortgage and a 30 year mortgage. What if we just decided to take the difference of that payment and put it somewhere else in that cost of money rate, that savings rate? When you incorporate on a 30-year loan versus a 15-year loan, all things being equal, okay, interest rate being equal and everything on the whole nine yards, the compound cost of a 15-year is larger than a 30-year. And in many cases, by a lot. I'm talking, you might, you'd have to have maybe even a full point increase in interest rate just to even break even with the compound cost analysis. And again, you can't see this right now. If I showed you the math, it would probably be like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize it worked that way, which is a lot of times what we see. Mm -hmm. So that's part. Of, that's the next part of the math is understanding that when you incorporate all the details and information that really needs to be present in order to run a full analysis, oftentimes and more often than not, a third year makes way more sense. You have payment flexibility, meaning you don't have to make that larger payment, but you can if you want to pay it off faster if you want to, that's totally fine. Oftentimes we'll show people that that's actually not the best thing if you have a really low interest rate environment because you could earn more somewhere else. That's, that's an arbitrage calculation. That's how banks make money. How can I, can I, can I earn more than I'm borrowing? You know, um, The next part of this is inflation. This is something that's really, really key that I've never heard a banker talk about. Not only have I never heard him talk about the other part that I just said, I've never heard him talk about this next piece. Whenever you have a fixed payment, so it's a mortgage, even life insurance, that if people are going to buy permanent life insurance, the ones that have fixed payments, that is something to look at because inflation helps you here. Our money is being devalued right now at an exorbitantly fast rate, okay? And it's going to get worse if taxes go up because if you think about this intuitively, when you raise taxes on corporations, what happens to the price of goods? They go up because they don't pay taxes. We do. 
Big corporations don't pay income taxes. I mean, yeah, do they technically pay them? Sure. But they offset that cost to their profitability margins by just making it more expensive for us to enjoy what they have. And that's just true. You know, we to, well, we're about to see this happen and we're seeing it happen um, with the cost of things in various places. If people are paying attention, just look at the price of things right now. As they continue to print more money, which they're doing at a rate that I never even imagined. And as they continue to do that, okay, not only is that a problem because the more currency we have, the, the less value our dollars have. And this is why I think the, um, I think the us being the United States being the world's reserve currency is in massive jeopardy because the rest of the world sees this too, right? This is not something that's hidden. We're creating money out of thin air digitally. So when we look at the third and fourth level effects of inflation and understanding that even a 5%, I'm sorry, a 3% inflation over 30 years is the same as a 60% income tax, all of a sudden now, our fixed payment on our mortgage is a benefit to us because a $2,700 mortgage payment now versus that 3 or 4% inflation 30 years from now is going to be more like $700 or $900, somewhere in that, that, that range. I, don't, I can't do the math exactly in my head, but that's, the going to be, that's going to be what that payment feels like. So I know that people are in a big hurry to pay off their, their mortgages. I understand the appeal. But reality of it is, if somebody has equity in their home, and I do think that they should have some equity in their home when they retire, they can actually turn their home into a cash flow producing asset, just simply by using some of the remor- the mortgages that are out there that actually pay you, <laughs> um, that are federally insured. You know, uh, re- reverse mortgage has always been a dirty word because people don't understand it, and. It's not something everybody should do. And it's not, I'm not telling people to go right out and do it. So I want to make sure I say that. But in reality, if I can get tax-free income from my home while I live there, all right, that's not a you bad mean deal. Once, you, once you're older, once you're- Certainly, right. certainly. So I think just, but I think younger people, as they think about this, I think that the younger folks that are listening, it's about what you do today to position yourself for later. It's, 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 you know, if you look at a master chess player, master chess players, the reason why they're so good is they can think moves ahead that novices can't. And if we can, if, if people learn those chess moves at a young age, 25, 28, 30, 35, somewhere in that, age, whatever it is, younger than that even, they're going to be so much better off financially because they understand the rules of engagement better than probably a lot of people that are even ready to retire at this point. Because they've been, again, they've been fed all this information from every source. And now that information's coming in as fast as we can blink through social media. It's not getting any easier to discern what's actually going on here or to what's true and what isn't. But, you know, a lot of what we're taught by the powers that be are either half true or untrue. And it's unfortunate because an example would be, you know, just go, don't set it, forget it, go put your money in a compounding environment. Actually, I actually heard somebody in my industry say once that Albert Einstein said that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Einstein never said that. If you, if you actually call the, the uh, Albert Einstein Institute, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, so we've been told compounding your money. So this is for every young person that's, that's out there. We've been told that compounding your money is always inherently good. And so I would say compounding your money. What do you mean? What I mean is you put money in a, and it's an awesome question. Um, you put money in an account and let's say it's earning 5% or 6% and you leave it alone. Maybe you add to it. Maybe you don't, 
So for instance, if you if a hundred years ago, if we're sitting here a hundred and we're back back a hundred years ago, if you if you put a twenty dollar bill into a interest bearing account, and again, I'm gonna use twenty percent only because back in the nineties you could throw a dart at a dartboard and get twenty percent. We saw what happened with GameStop. You know, there's there's ways to get high returns. I'm not saying people should chase that. It's actually the wrong conversation, but it is relevant to what I'm talking about here. Um, Art Laffer was an advisor to Reagan during the Reagan administration. He talked about something called the Laffer curve, which is what it was deemed after it was all said and done. You put $20 into an account earning 20% over 100 years, it grows to $1.65 billion, which is incredible. So the comp so that's what I mean by compounding. You're earning return on your money over and over again. So a dollar or a ten dollars that earns ten percent, that's another dollar that goes on there the next year. The hemp ten percent is going to grow on eleven dollars, and then keep moving forward and forward. You're compounding your money over time, right? Yeah. So that sounds like a great deal. It sounds awesome, and and by and large, the mathematical formula to it or the outcome of it is fantastic. The problem is that. What if it's in a taxable environment, which is oftentimes it is either deferred to a later date when you're going to be taxed or taxed every year. So let's stick with every year. The problem with this is not only is it compounding our money, it's compounding our lost opportunity costs. It's compounding our money exiting our life because we're taxed on it. So all those gains every single year, we owe rent to Uncle Sam for parking our money in an area that's taxable on things like dividends or capital gains that are realized or interest, all those things are taxable every year, depending on where you put them, right? So if it's an after-tax investment and you put this money into an after-tax account and you compound it every single year, yeah, your money's growing, but your tax liability is growing. That money has to come from somewhere. So now we have that money leaving our world. So if I showed you right now, call it $20,000 or $10,000 a year going into a taxable investment like that. By the time we got out, depending on the rate of return, anywhere between 17 and 22 years down the road, your tax liability could in fact, and indeed might be larger than your contribution. Oh my gosh. So now think about this for a minute. Let's say we get out to year 20 and my tax liability on this account's $10,000. Where's that coming from? If it's coming from the account, now we have a lost opportunity cost because that money's leaving and exiting a place where it's earning something. So oftentimes what people will do, if it's a nominal enough amount of money, they'll take it from their savings account, their checking account. Well, what could we have done with that money? <laughs> we could have invested that money too. So now all, all the while we've been compounding our money in the spot, thinking everything's going great. And in reality, what we're missing is the money that's exiting and leaving because of the very nature of where we've located the money. So now we have to pay attention to these carrying costs. No differently than the example I used of, of, of a business owner and, and having one business that has carrying costs that are, are, that, are, that are, you know, eradicating their profits versus somebody who's a little bit more mindful about that. These carrying costs, and then you also have, so there's taxes, you also have fees. Paying fees to an investment advisor isn't bad. I mean, you get professional management, you're likely going to keep more of your money over time after doing a good job because they, they, that's their job is to protect your wealth and to help you grow it. But I like the fees of having the fees on a $100,000 account or a $10,000 account than I do on a million dollar account because they don't change. They're, they're still, maybe it's less in fees because there's bands you get to. But the point is you're compounding your fees over time. 
So now we got to look at, all right, what else am I compounding that's leaving my world? And there's so many different examples of this. So oftentimes, I just showed this example to somebody the other day. We had a, a, when we had an 11.35%, so 11.35% um, assumed rate of return, which I would never show somebody for the purposes of projections in any way, shape, or form, just more of a concept here. By the time we were done looking at taxes, fees, market volatility, and inflation, we had a negative yield. Wow. So this erosion is a real thing. It, it is real. It exists. It's devastating. And this is, this is nothing new. Our, we've had confiscation of wealth going on for a very long time. They're just getting better at hiding it. And so it doesn't, what do we again, do? doesn't make it bad. So where do we put our money? Where, if we right. can save a little bit, what do we do? Right. So th this is not meant to, to tell people don't invest your money. This is not meant to tell people that it's bad. This is not meant to tell people you shouldn't have financial products. You absolutely need them. Not only that, you need these entities to be successful. Our government needs to be successful. So do our corporations and so do our financial institutions. Follow economic principles, okay? So for one, one of the economic principles we've already talked about, make sure that you have a protection area of your financial situation, your financial model, we call it. Make sure that you have maximum benefits. Then we need to position somebody to be able to produce maximum money supply. And that, and that is really centered around how do you get the most income? This was never meant to be an accumulation conversation with people out there, all, all, but that's what it's become. Because again, it follows those four rules of financial institutions. Keep their money here, get it, get it systematically, make sure we keep it as long as we can and give them back little by little if we gotta give them back anything at all. And again, it doesn't mean you don't get to use and spend your money, but again, but just by the very nature when we get out to retirement, we are told right now, statistically, that if you're 65 years old or 60 years old or whatever, don't spend more than 2 or 3% per year indexed for inflation out of your retirement accounts if you need that money to last more than 25 or 30 years. Or else you're putting yourselves in, in a very, very high probability or an increased probability of running out of money. And they've done studies on this. People would rather die than run out of money. I can't imagine feeling that way. But people statistically and by, by through studies, it would rather pass away. They'd rather die than run out of money. They don't want to live that way. I understand it. I get it. But this is all preventable. And so it is following economic guidelines. If somebody is not saving at least 15% of their gross earnings every year religiously, this will never work. And if it does work, I'll say, well, I won't say never. They're going to have to get really lucky. And I don't want a model based on luck or hope. We want a model based on design. We want outcomes based on design. So saving 15% of somebody's gross income is vitally important. Staying very liquid, I would say, is another one. Opportunities are going to knock on your door if you have money in a liquid position, I promise you. So the very nature that an opportunity comes along and we have to go refinance a house or go blow up a 401k or go take money out of a stock or that's doing really well or something, that might indeed end up being a bad proposition. If we have cash, so what we always tell people, at least have 50% of your gross earnings sitting in a cash position. Ideally one that's earning constant forward momentum and rate of return that has benefits attached to it. Again, not which to would be Which would be an example of that. Would that be some sort of 
municipal fund or would that be? Um, uh, you know, a lot of times um, we say, you know, cash is king. So just cash, cash is great. Um, we need to have that. Um, there's liquid, there's liquid features to life insurance products. There's life insurance products that exist that are guaranteed to work. There's no risk. And if we do it right, cost is significantly mitigated with with a, with an insurance strategy. If we have the right type of permanently structured death benefit and cash value on the financial model, and again, not getting into too specifics here because everybody's different, and some people aren't ready for that. Um, there's things that need to be done first before you dive into that world. But that's a very very unique and effective place to put cash because you can access it. It's providing benefits behind the scenes, many, many benefits that are quantifiable, um, living benefits, we call them. Is that um, what they call the death insurance? I've heard it referred to as death insurance. Yeah, you know, our, our industry calls things a lot of stuff, you know, it's yeah. uh, even life insurance. It, the reason why it's called life insurance is because it's supposed to help you throughout your entire lifetime. Why, why like whole life insurance specifically very misunderstood product gets a very bad rap some of it not all that good some of it extremely good depending on how it's used um but but yeah i mean there's there's all sorts of financial products out there and when you start getting into insurance products i think one of the things that people need to realize is you're accessing another financial power we all default to rate of return you and i can go invest somewhere and, we, and anybody in your audience can go invest somewhere and get a rate of return on something, right? We all default to that. It's actually how all the risk has actually been transferred onto us because the pensions have disappeared. We used to have pensions. The reason why pensions are so powerful and why I love working with people that have them is because they are so valuable because of another financial power that exists called actuarial science. Mortality credits is really the the the, the the uh, fundamental term for it. It's a risk pool. So I'll give you an example. Now, my grandfather is a great example of this. Um, great man. I missed him dearly. He died when I was five. I remember the day like it was yesterday. It was very close with all my grandparents, uh, him no exception. So he dies um, a few years after he retires, not very long. And again, I was pretty young, so I don't recall all of this, but he had a pension and he picked the biggest one. So that's called a uh, that is called a um, single life pension, single life annuity. Um, he died like three years into it, and because he picked that largest amount, that money that could have gone to my grandmother had he picked a survivorship option, meaning, hey, Lou, we're going to reduce your pension, but if you pass away prematurely, Anita is going to get either fifty percent or seventy-five or one hundred percent of what you're getting, depending on what you pick. Awesome. No one gave him that education. So he picked the biggest one and then he died, unfortunately. And all that money that should have gone to my grandmother went right back into the pension system. That in and of itself is a mortality credit. It's a very, very powerful financial tool. That's why insurance companies are far better distributors of money than in financial institutions that are more equity-based and they always will be. Because you and I go put money in our 401 or or, or 401k or 403b or whatever, if you have any young teachers that are out there that have a pension, you have a gold mine there. Keep it, <laughs> nurture it, do whatever you can to make sure you keep that on the books because it's very valuable. But all we can do is get that singular rate of return um, environment where we just have that one financial power, which is what is my investment doing? We don't have a risk pool protecting the asset. 
meaning, hey, someone passes away and we can re-divert those funds to somebody else who's, in, who's got an income promise coming to him from a pension fund. It's predominantly why the pensions got in trouble because they were underestimating what they, they overestimated their yields, what they could earn, and they underestimated how people were, along where people were going to start living because of medical technology and it imploded. The, that and corruption imploded the pension market. Um, mm -hmm. So now people are stuck holding the bag. You know, the risk is all on us now, whereas before the risk was on the pension fund to pay us a pension for the rest of our lives. And I'm thankful that my dad was a teacher and he gets to enjoy a pension because it's a, he's a happy guy uh, first of every month when the money comes in. You know, mm -hmm. they, they, there's been studies on this even. The people that are the happiest have guaranteed income, period. Um, they have a sleep factor at night. They know that they don't have to worry now. We could have an argument that the pensions are in trouble, but they're, you know, that, that's a different conversation. So my whole point with that is that it's vitally important for people to understand that having annuity products and life insurance is critically important. As a matter of fact, without them, winning this game is going to be darn near impossible because you're only accessing one financial power when there's two that are inherently very, very powerful. And when you use them together, they're unstoppable in many cases. But that's the biggest missing link. So we talked about making sure you're liquid. We talked about making sure if you're going to put money into, I would say, qualified retirement plans. This is something that has to be done intentionally. Maxing it out every year, I don't, I don't agree with doing that because it's locking the money up. Um, so what we tell people typically is put it up to your match. I mean, there are circumstances where maxing it out could make sense. But in a lot of cases, it doesn't because now that money's tied up. And I can tell you, even personally, from where I sit, I've had bad income years before, you know, especially when I was younger. And I had to tap into my 401k because I did it prematurely and I had to take a huge penalty and I had to pay taxes and a bunch of painful things that I don't like even remembering because you look all, you see all that money leave. Um, or if it's an opportunity that comes along and like say you have to invest in a business or something. To do it from a place like that is very problematic potentially because you could lose a lot of wealth that way. And we see it happen all the time. So when, in regards to anything that the government controls, we just wanna have a rules-based approach to this. Meaning, you know, up to the match, no more than 7% typically of what someone's earning should go there because beyond that, we're really tying their hands in the event they need to access that capital for anything they might want to access it. And then we talked about one of these other principles a minute ago, which is just don't let your money sit and compound in one place in most financial products. Um, it's better to keep the money moving. So a lot of times what we'll do is we'll say, you know, take your earnings and go put them somewhere that doesn't have taxation. Like Roth IRA is a great place to put money because it's no income taxes on the gains or what you spend later on in life. Um, municipal bonds, you mentioned, that's not a powerful place potentially. Municipal bonds are a little tough right now because of uh, the condition of our many municipalities, but by, by principle, um, that's a great place because of tax, it's a tax haven. Um, HSA, a great place in the tax code, pre-tax, tax free on distribution, tax deferred, all this stuff, tax free growth. Um, What's H HSA? A, a health savings account. 
Oh, I see. So if, if anybody out there who's a, a young mom and they have kids and they're wondering what insurance plan should I pick, you know, if they are going to go into a higher deductible plan to save money on premiums, funding an HSA with that is very important because that's money that's never going to get taxed again. And that along with life insurance are probably the two most powerful thing, uh, things that we have access to in the tax code that people just, I think, by and large, don't understand the power behind that the, the avoidance of taxes, keeping your money off the radar of the IRS as much as you possibly can. So if you invest in an HSA and you put money in every year for 15 mm -hmm. years, then you still have access to that money should, you know, or, a business yeah. opportunity come up, you can use it without penalty. Now, you know, you know, it's a health savings account. So you, in order to maintain your tax benefits, you need to make sure you're using it for um, something that has to do with your health. So either, either, um, out-of-pocket costs for your health maintenance and support. Um, um, it could be premiums on long-term care insurance in the future. It's definitely a bucket that young people should start to fill because this healthcare monster is not going to get any easier. And if we ever want to maintain any privatized healthcare, which, which the direction it's going is to not have it privatized um, and to have it again, another government assistance program that we have a lot of, uh, it just means that um, it's going to be even more critical to have tax advantages if you're going to pay for your own insurance or you're going to need to get access care in the future, which we all know we're going to. So it would be more of a chess move for later. Um, not necessarily, and you can use it now. Like we use our HSA all the time for paying for things over the counter, even prescriptions, a visit to the ER, whatever it might be. Um, that money can be used without any taxes. I see. Okay. Yeah. So it's so, tax avoidance. Yeah. So I like you were saying, um, just going back for to, you said, I think you said 15%, if a couple can save 15% of their income, put that away. Is that right? Is that what you said? Me meaning, hey, if you're clipping away, like so we have some people that are really good savers um, uh, in, our, in our world. Um, they save 20, 25, 30% of their income. If whatever you're saving, whatever whatever that number is, you're saving 10%, 15%, whatever. Um, and I say 15% because of the eroding factors. You have taxes, inflation, you have things becoming obsolete, you have technology that changes, you have all these things that erode wealth. And in order to keep up with that, 15% really needs to be the mark. Um, um, but what I meant by that was accumulate to, so if you're making $100,000 a year, have 50,000 parked in cash. Um, at least a bank would call that tier one capital. A bank would call that accessible money that we can just go get and we can go lend out or, or spend or whatever we want to do. Um, have at least $50,000 sitting there in, in, a, in a liquid position, cash, you know, cash equivalent of some kind so that you can take advantage of every opportunity that comes along with that money. Or if an emergency comes along, you don't have to run to toxic debt. And that's a huge principle. Um, there's nothing wrong with debt, but debt should not be how you grow your wealth. So credit card debt, never good to carry because uh, obviously high interest rates, it's revolving, it hammers your credit score if you're over leveraged on it. Um, if you default on it, it goes in your credit report. There's so many bad things that can happen with credit cards and our, and our country by and large abuses credit. Um, so although debt is a powerful tool and it certainly should be part of the conversation, Good debt is what we're looking for. You know, debt to finance a business, debt to have on a property, um, a commercial or a residential loan, whatever it might be. Um, 
you know, uh, interfamily loans. There's nothing wrong with that. So, you know, a lot of times we'll see a situation where because interest rates are so low, grandma is or grandpa is earning nothing on their their savings. And, you know, older people um, tend to be a lot more conservative. Women tend to be a lot more conservative. Every female client, and my wife can attest to this, they like certainty of outcomes, typically. They want to know what's going to happen. And they want to know everything's going to be okay. And, you know, we, we have a lot of, um, you know, we have a lot of females in our client base that are the breadwinners. Like, they indeed want to know what's going on because they're making the money. And um, I can't tell you how important it is to understand that dynamic um, of, of making sure that we do not have too much debt on the books, but making sure that we, when we do have debt, have the right type of debt. Um, having a mortgage is not a bad thing. Uh, having, having debt service is not a bad thing. But when it, when it is abused, it can be crippling. And, and a lot of times what we see is people try to get out of debt and they'll just strip all their money out of their world. So basically they'll be debt free, but they're broke. And that's also not good. We have to take a systematic approach to getting out of debt. And it can't be just dump the whole farm on it because if that's the case, then now all of a sudden all those resources that we had in play, all right, well, what about all my lost opportunity costs and what I could have gone and done? So there, there, there needs to be a very, very tactical approach to that. Um, but by no means should people use debt to, to become wealthy because that, that backfires more often than not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is also indeed a principle that we would want to follow. Yeah. Okay. Um, wow. You know, I realized there is so much more <laughs> to talk about to this conversation than, than I really anticipated. It's just can go in so many different directions and I know we're getting up there for time, sure. but I really would love to, you know, for people, young people mm-hmm. who are trying to, you know, save money and put some money aside in those different places that you recommended or whatever other ideas mm-hmm. that they have to save for a small business or whatever. Um, can we just maybe talk about some money saving strategies or money when you talk about opportunity costs, maybe any examples yeah. from your clients that you've worked with over the years, have people have been able to, especially the younger clients have been able to leverage their, um, you know, part of their money to them produce more money. So yeah, um, money making. Yeah. So um, what I would say is, um, if I understand your question, you know, what are what are some? Um, I guess help me out with just uh, kind of exactly what it is you want to know. Yeah. So I guess there are two different questions. One, I would love to know your recommendations of how to save money, how to cut down costs. I mean, I have some ideas that go through my head and probably some obvious ones for people, um, but where they can, how to do that. And then the next piece would be, you know, if they can save some money, maybe how they can make that money then work for them. So you had talked about, for example, in that example, you're um, Mm -hmm. the couple who bought a home for their son to live in and then they're using that, you know, that's paying for his education. Mm-hmm. So I have a rental property. And when, I mean, now that, that we actually paid for it. So now that it's paid for, then now it's a real source of income that we can really depend on. Certainly. So, and it costs us money and it is work and it's not easy, but it's very comforting to know if our restaurant doesn't do well, especially in this climate, 
you know, where restaurants are going out of business, that we right. have something that we have something yeah. that can, you know, give us income. So, yeah. so that's the other piece. So they're really Certain, two different questions. Certainly, certainly. Um, for one, pay yourself first. Savings should be done um, as a number one priority. So you save, uh, you save your, your amount you want to save that you've decided in your model makes sense, at least 15% or more. And if, again, if somebody can't start there, that's fine. You know, we have a lot of people that can only start at like five or 10%. That's okay. It's a great place to start. Now we can figure out, all right, well, maybe we do it through your human capital, your raises, whatever it might be through work, or maybe we start to figure out how you can be more efficient to your point, get some passive income with a property or something like that, or with some other type of financial investment. Um, but pay yourself first is one of the first things we tell people. Don't sacrifice your future for enjoyment now. Now, you should be able to enjoy now, right? So you want to make sure that whatever you're doing, you want to build in those things. So I always tell people too, if you're saving 15%, save a little extra for the purpose of you going out and blowing it and enjoying your money. Because as much as it sounds great, if you can't go enjoy your money that you're, that you're earning and how hard you might be working to earn it, and you're just saving all of it, that's also not the best. It might, it might be great for your future, but you need to live now too. You need time to go on vacations. We need to be able to, to get clarity, meditate, whatever, that, whatever your routine is. So money helps with that. So pay yourself first. I would also say the people that, are, that end up accumulating a lot of wealth, they live below their means. And sometimes their means are vast, <laughs> right? So even if they have a private jet, they're probably living below their means. But I'm, what I'm saying is for the vast majority of people, live below your means so that you have the ability to save. And if you, if you do those things and you have your expenses covered and you're saving, anything above and beyond that, you can guilt-free go and enjoy you can go on that vacation that you wanted to go on, or you could take that road trip, or you can you could you could you could take your kids somewhere that you've always wanted to take, and maybe that's with grandma and grandpa. Whatever those dreams are, dream big, and 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 the personal economy needs to be able to satisfy those dreams, and that has everything to do with those principles that I just talked about. There's no financial product that's ever going to get in that or it's ever going to eclipse what the principles and sound principles of economics are going to bring to somebody and deliver to somebody over the lifetime. You know, what strikes me when you say that is enjoy, you know, if you have, once you put your savings aside and your bills are paid, then use your money to, you know, bring enjoyment yeah. to your life. You know, it just strikes me how we've been so conditioned that spending money is what brings us happiness, <laughs> you know? Right. So it's, it's, I wonder, I mean, I would like to encourage people to really challenge yourself to find things that you enjoy doing, passing time with your family that don't spend a lot of money. 100%. Maybe it's like inviting your friends over and it's a potluck in your backyard, or maybe it's, mm -hmm. you know, just um, taking walks with your husband or your daughter or your son or, you know, but those times that we try to spend less and enjoy more. <laughs> you 100%. Know? Yeah. And, and that, that would be great advice for anybody. You know, I mean, happiness to your point does not come from money. Actually, they've, they've done studies on this above $75,000 a year. There is no increase in happiness for, for a family, $75,000. And that was a study done several years ago. It may have changed a little bit, but I can't imagine it's changed much. 
but 75 grand a year was the mark. Anything above and beyond that really doesn't have any direct effect on happiness. So you're right, chasing all of that. Now, what I will tell you is not having any money when you need it the most or when you're retired, that's a problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, out, out to your point, find things that you love to do. Find things that you're passionate about. And that's the thing. For any anybody that is in your audience that if they have things that they are passionate about, go and create that for yourself. Go and do what you're passionate about. And I, I know a lot of people that are able to do that and they make money doing it. And again, money's a necessity because it's what we're forced to use. We don't have a choice here. We have to have it. This is the it's fiat fiat currency. The definition of that is we're forced to use it as our as our medium of exchange. We we're, we can't use anything else. People still do barter online and stuff like that. But by and large, that's inconvenient and it's not it's not uh, what we're told. It's not what's regulated. This is what's regulated. Um, so I could not agree with you more. I, I think that's a great point and find things that you enjoy doing and do those things, especially after seeing what we've all been through in the last year. This has been tough on a lot of people and it's not going to get any easier for a lot of people either. Hopefully it is for some, hopefully it is for all, but it's, we've got some rough terrain ahead, I think. So I think that's a great piece of advice that you just gave there. Thank you. So, okay. So then the next piece, um, how to get your money working for you. Yes. Um, and it sounds like that's a good segue. What you were talking about is doing what you love. Maybe there's some side projects. I know, where was I reading? You know, somebody started a side project of, you know, knitting. I think it was mm -hmm. knitting. They were knitting hats and mittens. And then that became a side project that they started making money on. You know, they started selling certainly. it. So. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that is a way, but I will tell you, it, it's um, people oftentimes ask, how do I get my money working for me? How do I get my money working for me? What do I do? And there, there's, there's a fallacy that the money has to be parked in some product that it sits there forever and it's the best one out there and that's what they're in search of. That's going to win the game. That's not the case. So what I would tell people is in order to get money working for them, okay, and it's the, it's the actual dollars in their actual, you know, model, their financial situation, you got to keep it in motion. And again, um, you know, we actually had a software platform that we would use called Wealth in Motion at the time, created by Bob Castellone's team. Um, it's a little bit different now, but the model that he created is 40 years old. The principles are the same. It hasn't changed. Um, he, he, I, I was the benefactor of learning a system that was not created to sell financial products. It was created to teach people how money worked. And what I would tell people is keeping your money in motion is important. Meaning if you, if you have earnings and it's down in a stock portfolio that you've decided to go invest in mutual funds, take those earnings and capture them. This, this, this whole notion that we've been told and taught to automatically reinvest our earnings, that cannot be true. Because if you actually look at it right now, where's the stock market sit today? We're, we're right around the all-time high area, right? It's over, it's, it's, a, it's, it's enormous, right? It's, it's not something we've never eclipsed up to the, till this point. Um, I don't know if that's going to stay that way, but it's gotten to that point. Um, is it a good time to buy? Is it a good time to buy when everything is at full price? You know, even it's goods, if you go into a store and it's the spring line somewhere, is it is it smart to always buy things when they're full price? Now, I mean, 
I would say no. And it's the same thing in the stock market. So for people that want to invest, there's principles of investing too that we probably don't have time to get into today, but um, but make sure, make sure that we're not just let it money sitting stagnant. Because if we do, if money sits stagnant, just like a just like water, what happens to water when it's stagnant and there's no flow? It becomes poison. It becomes infected. Money's the exact same thing. If it sits and it's stagnant and it's not moving and we're not doing intentional things with it, then we are inviting erosion. We are inviting wealth to be stripped away. And it's predominantly why we see a lot of people that lose more money than they're going to keep. Not because they have that it's not because of their decisions were bad. It's because the strategy they're using invites it. And, you know, it happens on all different areas, whether it's taxation or whether it's other legislation or whether it's, you know, fees that are nickeling diming us every single year, bank ATM fees, all that stuff. I think oftentimes, Jennifer, people are looking for what's the silver bullet, what's the magic bullet. There's nothing like that that exists. And it really isn't. And it has to be done intentionally by design. It has to be strategy. So one of those strategies would indeed be making sure that we're making tactical moves. We're making intelligent decisions around what to do with money. But what I will tell your, your, your young audience, have life insurance, have things like disability insurance, even if you're stay at home, the amount of money that to replace a mom that stays at home is staggering. Between fifty and $100,000 a year is what a family is missing out on by not having either a mom or a dad, either one, be home um, with their kids. And, and, if, and if they're gone, if something happens to them, that surviving spouse that is working, A, are they going to be able to work as many hours? Probably not. You got young kids, potentially. Um, what does it cost to replace that economic impact of that person at home? It's a big, it's, a, it's sometimes six figure range per year. That's why um, what I would tell young moms, even if you are not working, you have massive economic value to your household, massive. And it needs to be insured because it would be a horrible day emotionally, obviously, but economically speaking, it's a very bad day when a spouse goes before another spouse and you have a young family. Um, I can't tell you the situations that I've seen unfold where that usually the deck of cards falls mm -hmm. uh, because people are vastly underinsured in this country. They, the, if, if the way that I would phrase this to your young audience is that like, for instance, um, I'll even ask you, Jennifer, you, you, you and your husband are both successful. Um, if something happened to your husband and it was somebody else's fault, how much are you suing the other party for? Well, I have, I don't know. Right. I so don't know. what a plaintiff attorney would tell you is how much is he making times? How many years is he going to work? And that's where the lawsuit starts. We see these lawsuits usually in the areas, uh, there's seven figures almost every single time because people that are successful make good money. So if you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year, let's say as an example, and you know, you're going to work for 20 more years, that's, that's a minimum of $2 million that it's going to take to replace that income. It's likely going to be more, uh, a lot more. So we just have to look at it from that perspective. Um, you know, uh, the protection area is vastly important. The savings area is vastly important. The growth area is vastly important. Making sure that you have passive income streams, uh, you know, that you can develop those over your lifetime is really important. 
making sure you have good debt instruments if you're going to have debt. And again, like we talked about, um, having a mortgage is not a bad thing. And then just understanding your cash flow. What is going in? What's going out? If we look at how businesses operate, I mean, you guys run a successful business. You guys know your cash in, cash out. You know what your insurances cost you. You know why you own them. You know that if somebody sues you, you're going to have certain liability provisions to, so that people don't confiscate your business or try to you know, take you down. Those are all things that people need to do within their own personal economy. So they almost need to treat their own little personal economy like a business because it is one. It's a business, all right, and and there's money going in, money going out, but we oftentimes don't see people treat it that way. They treat it as that they have to just save and get the biggest amount of money possible, and that is just part of the equation. There's so much more to it than that. So I, I would say that, um, you know, first and foremost, save. Um, if you are going to put money into things that the that the government um, gives us tax advantages to be cognizant of what you're doing, be aware of how much you're putting there and that it's not overfunded too early to where it puts you at a disadvantage. Um, if you're gonna put money into areas of growth, just understand that you don't wanna let it just sit there too long because of the fear of losing a lot of it through fees and taxation over time could be very problematic. You know, if you're gonna send your kids to school like we talked about, let's see if we can get other people to pay for it <laughs> because, <laughs> because that's, that's a huge benefit. And again, I, I'm not saying that you, don't spend any of your own money, but it's just, let's just be smart about this because if you do it too much, you're gonna end up losing a lot more than you bargained for. You know, um, buying versus renting a home. Buying a home is great. Renting can be good, but buying, it's, it's an asset and having your own property is vastly important. Owning property in general is a great place to have wealth um, for, for, for anyone, anybody. You know, it's just like, you know, if, you, if you're renting, you know, uh, just like term insurance. Term insurance has its place for life insurance. That's, that's, that's where if you own term insurance contract, it might be good for 10 years, 15, 20 years. Has its place. If something happens early, you're covered. But if you live and you get what you want, you just lost everything that that contract had to offer because it was only designed to be there for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. So all the premiums are gone. The death benefit's gone. That's a huge thing. People come to me a lot of times and say, oh, I, why would I need a death benefit in retirement? When you understand what a death benefit does, a life insurance death benefit does in retirement, you'll want one because what it means is that you get to spend a lot of your other money that ordinarily you would have had to let sit on the sidelines and preserve. So it really, there really is a lot of moving pieces to this. I wish there was a way to make it easy. Yeah. Do um, you have any books? Do you have any places if people- Oh my gosh. You know, I don't, I have- Simple I will books. tell you this. Yeah, I will tell you this. There's no, there's no, there's no uh, limit to those resources. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd have to give that some thought uh, on just which ones, but um, there are some really good uh, authors out there in this space, um, and that's something I could certainly shoot over to you, and you could make available to your audience. Um, yeah, that would be great. Just someplace. Yeah, it's so much information. It's. It's if you don't mind, I'll have you back on. I want to talk I about love also to. <laughs> talk about you know just understanding what you know the new currency crypto. And I don't want to go into it now, but yeah, crypto yeah, 100%, 100%. and like different. Anyway, there's just so much more to talk about. I do want to ask you about your podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what would you like to know? Um, well, so we, I know it's called Liberty Monks. Can it you is. Talk to me about why you started it and why it's called Liberty Monks. What that signifies to you. Yeah. So, you know, my, my, my brother and I, my brother helped me co-create that along with my wife and my sister-in-law, Chrissy. Um, 
uh, and I, I could not have done this without them because uh, I, I, you went through this course too. It, it was pretty uh, intense. I'm running a company too. It was very difficult, a lot harder than I thought. Um, but Liberty Monks is what the purpose behind this podcast is to bring awareness around what it means to have freedom, what it means to have the liberties that we um, have our benefactors to in this great country that we live in. Um, what I see because of the pandemic and the response to it and the governance of the states, um, the governance um, on a local level is that it violates every fabric of our constitution and our individual God-given rights. And that's something that I am very passionate about. So when I had the option of doing different podcasts, you know, all these ideas were going through my head and where it, where it turned out uh, is that I, I, I was having these moments where I could not sleep. Um, I was waking up in cold sweats and I had this nervous energy inside me and I couldn't explain it. And the only thing that I can tell you is this, that God was somehow talking to me because um, ever since we started Liberty Monks for the purpose of bringing awareness around what it means to be free, what it means to have um, inalienable rights given to us by God as what I believe has been hijacked by the state. And now the state decides what our rights are and we've let this happen. And it's unfortunate because it's not the way it should be. Um, they've they, they have overstepped their power to a degree that I never thought imaginable here in the United States. But if you actually go back and look <laughs> at the history of where we are and why we got here, this has been something that has been in the works since World War I, even beyond that, even before that. So Liberty Monks is simply a statement and a, and a, and a movement um, that our rights are given to us by God and that our constitution and our founding fathers put, the, put that document in place to uh, allow for government to protect those rights and to not become the entity that provides them. And I believe that that's what, ha what has happened here. And the whole mission behind this podcast is to get good people on to talk about how they feel about this and what they see in their life experiences and what they've been able to do with the, um, I would say, hampered free market that we've had the opportunity to be involved in here in this country. It isn't completely free market. If it was, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, life would be a whole lot different but government control has hampered the free market regulation all this stuff that we could get into and i just couldn't i couldn't stay just couldn't take it anymore to be quite candid with you um i i i know things are 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 uh, that there's bad things that are afoot because of what i understand about what we just talked about I know the misinformation that comes in from financial institutions, our government and the corporations that exist because I've been studying it for 18 years. I know it like the back of my hand and my, a lot of my colleagues do, my business partners do. We see this and we see the misinformation that flies around social media about where to put your money. And just, just the, the irresponsibility that people have to give people financial advice, A, that aren't licensed to do so in that capacity, but even beyond that, just to give anybody advice without knowing their unique circumstances is to me miss malpractice. Like I can tell you right now, there are certain financial products that are unbelievably awesome 
But that being said, they're not for everybody right now. And there are times when it, maybe they're not for anybody ever, you know? So that's why we started Liberty Monks. We started Liberty Monks because I knew there was a lack of information that's being fed to the general public about a lot of things. Um, maybe not all untrue, maybe some things half true, uh, but we wanted to add clarity to that. And, and we're one of those, we're, we're, we're people that want to inherently defend those God-given rights uh, because we believe that all of us deserve them. Thank you for that. I, um, you know, for people, not everyone believes in God. Some people oh, are yeah. atheists. Sure. And I know that there are people who are also believing, uh, well, I don't know much about it. What am I saying? <laughs> but, I, you know, people, <laughs> I don't know anything about anything. I don't claim to know a whole lot, but I am very curious. Sure, sure. <laughs> As am I believe in, you know, natural law. Uh, and it kind of fits that model too, that regardless, just you being here on this planet, no matter mm -hmm. where you live in the world, we should all have basic human rights. Yes. In this country, you know, like you said, and like a lot of people say, not everyone has actually been granted those rights. And I think that is, um, you know, a travesty to our history, but we have been as close as at least I feel like we, well, we have been, we're, we're as close as you can get to a free country in some aspects yeah. without really right. being free based on what you're talking about, the financial mm -hmm. markets and, yeah. you know, right. That's a whole conversation, but, you know, now to have um, just the restrictions and, you know, you every, I can't see how you can be in this country and not feel the clamping down of our rights. You know, as yeah. a parent, I feel it. And I see laws being passed that take away parental rights. I yep. see um, right now the you know people that want to speak their opinion are being, um, depending on what their beliefs are, are being censored. Yep. And I, that's just just wrong. That's just wrong. So I, I agree with you. Um, we, we are individuals, and we have individual rights, right? So this whole, and if, any, if anybody of your listeners, there's, there's a book, and this isn't a simple book, but everybody should read the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. Um, it's, it's called The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. And that will tell you the animal that that Federal Reserve is. It is not federal. It is not in any way, shape, or form a government agency. It is a private central bank. And it has been given and blessed the power to print money anytime it wants to. And so when people read that book, and, and even in the book, it tells you how to read it, you read the summaries first, because there's a lot here. Um, it will unleash an entire different view about how money came to even be in existence in the form that it is now, and how corrupt and wrong it is. I mean, Kennedy tried to fix this back in the 60s when he tried to bring back silver certificates and back things with silver. You know, and he, obviously we, he, was, he was assassinated and whatever, but um, since then, we've never been able to pull it off. And, and because nothing's backing it, it's a big problem. Um, we are individuals and this whole collectivism 
uh, is what was what also what uh, Ed talks about in, in, in a lot of his books, but in that one as well, it's putting collective groups ahead of the individual. And that is inherently wrong because a group is an abstract, as he would call it. And the only reason a group even exists is because of it's a bunch of individuals with individual rights, creativity, souls, whatever you want to call it. Um, and this whole this whole thing about sacrificing individuals for the, the greater good to me is morally as a moral hazard. And, and I think if we just get back to that level of detail, individuals are what matter and our ability to create value for each other. And I know there's a lot of people that don't believe in God, regardless of what people believe. I do believe that we're here to help other people. Regardless, we're here to be good. And that's why inside you have a conscience. I mean, there's, there's all these things that we could talk about, but that, that to me is the biggest war going on right now. It's the individual versus the collective group. And from, for my money, um, the individual is by far more important than any group. Every individual, by the way, no matter who they are, is more important than any group that's ever gonna be created on this, in this world. Amen. Because the individual, if you are taking care of the individual, and the yeah. individual can take care of themselves, then you're going to take care of the group naturally. It'll 100%. be a natural order of things. And we can achieve so much. I mean, one of the greatest things, I actually had this in front of me, and this is something that's very simple that I think everybody should read too. It's called I Pencil um, by Leonard E. Reed. And this, this paper is one of the most important economic documents anybody could possibly read. Um, it talks about how nobody in this world knows how to make a pencil. Nobody. Nobody can literally go make a pencil right now on their own because the process that it takes requires industries from all over the world doing what those industries do from, from where they get all the things for the rubber and all the different sources around the world that they get that and how that's created and how the, the rubber's mined, all this stuff. Um, to what they coat it with, to where the wood comes from, to how they, how they make the graphite. It is impossible for a person to actually make a pencil and nobody can tell you how to do it, except for understanding that you have to pull all these resources together in order to do it in a factory. And if people just read that, they would understand the power of free market because nobody did that. Nobody said, oh, well, it's time to make a pencil and let's go to Uganda and get this and let's go to, you know, um, this part of the world in Russia to get this or this part in the South America to get this. No one did that. What they did was there was industries that existed and over time they existed for various reasons. And there's all these people that had a play in why somebody or an entity was able to do and create something as simple as a pencil. And so that touches everything you see. And so if everybody just read that, I think people would have to take a step back and go, wait a minute. The free market is the best thing we have going for us. It's never going to be the government telling us this is how things work and this is how we're, that is so limiting and to human creativity and human spirit and human ingenuity and innovation. And that's what we're up against. It really is the, the free capitalism is being told, we're being told that capitalism's awful. We haven't been in a capitalist society purely in a very long time. There wouldn't be any social programs if this was a, if this was a complete free market. And I'm not saying we need to get rid of all of them. I'm just saying it is what it is. 
So I guess not to pontificate too much. There's just a lot of things like that, that I think if people start to read, that's the number one thing I can tell people, read. Read things that were created by people a long time ago where they had to just come up with this stuff. I mean, they're brilliant. And even the way they talk is different because they were way more insightful than we are today, you know? And so let's just read, read as much as you can and, um, and come up with questions. There is advantages and disadvantages to everything. And my industry and the products and the different things that are available are no exception. Everything has advantages and disadvantages. Uh, everybody should know that, especially with financial stuff, with their money. So if that's if there's one thing I can leave to your, to your young, awesome audience of moms that are out there is understand that piece of it. Understand that piece of it specifically. Um, and, and, and all of a sudden things can become a lot more clear. Great. Well, thank you, Jamie. I will leave the links in the description below to the, awesome. the paper you just spoke of and mm -hmm. your and your website. Should anybody want to actually thank you or get your um, professional advice and thank you. a link to your podcast. So thank you. You're so awesome. Much for joining well, thank us you. today. No, thank it's you for been, having me. This has been, been a lot great. of fun. It's been, I mean, the topic is just too, so vast. Maybe I should have broken it down to into um, more sections. I mean, there were, there were so many more topics I wanted to cover, but, you know, yeah, we could go on forever. But I'd, I, I'd, I'd be happy to, to, to share any insight that would be helpful um, anytime you want. So. Alrighty. Thanks again. Thank you.